Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Colin taking a step of faith. And it's been amazing just uh, watching you work in his life. And Lord, tonight, Lord, we all gather together in your name to know you in a deeper way. We pray for our hearts, if they are troubled today, that we would surrender those troubles to you, Lord. We aren't meant to carry troubles, but you are, Lord. You are equipped for that, so let us cast our cares upon you. I pray that your word would not return void. I pray, Lord, that as we come into your word, that our hearts would be wide awake and receptive to receive the truth of your word. We believe in the authority of your word and the power of your word, Lord. And, and so may your word be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Help us, Lord, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you say hello to someone, please? All right, come on in, everybody. Have a seat. All right, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. Last week, we just sort of did a, kind of an introduction, I, I would call it, into these next three chapters, which have to do with the spiritual gifts. The Apostle Paul does not want us to be ignorant of the spiritual gifts. We have to ask ourselves, Tonight, are we those who are operating in the Spirit? The church at Corinth, they were carnal, meaning fleshly. And so imagine trying to exercise your spiritual gifts when you're fleshly. doesn't work too good. Uh, those two things are not compatible. The flesh and the Spirit, not compatible uh, it's important for us as a church body and as individuals to know what's afforded to us as those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who have been given gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer here tonight, you have gifts that God has given you. These are called in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. They're called gifts of grace, and we are to be stewards over those gifts, meaning we are to be responsible for how we use spiritual gifts. Uh, the Apostle Paul introduces this section, uh, of, and he calls uh, what he's going to talk about in this section, he calls them spirituals, and I pointed out last week how the word gifts is in italics, so that's not there. Um, it's just spirituals, things of the Spirit. But obviously he's talking about spiritual gifts because later on, he actually says spiritual gifts. The word gifts is uh, charisma, where we get that word, and it has to do with grace. And that's where we understand that uh, the gift that we have been given is spiritual energy to work in the realm and the things of God. And so, as a church, if we begin to rely on our own abilities and our own strength, substituting the things of the Spirit with the things of ourself or the flesh, then we will not have the church that God intends and desires, and that will be 
really it'll be a dead church. It'll be a lukewarm church. It'll be a church that the, in the book of Revelation, it's um, told to the, book, uh, to the church at Ephesus that they should return to their first love. Uh, a church like that just is very dry, uh, very critical, very divisive, very judgmental. Um, this, that's the church at Corinth. That's what they were like. And so there's infighting. Satan was having his way with them, rendering them ineffective in the calling that God had placed in their life and in the church community. And so he addresses these issues. So let's take a look and uh, start. We'll just get a running start. I know we covered some of this last week, but in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts or spirituals, brethren. So obviously he's talking about believers. That's important to know. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He says, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. He's talking about their past life and how they used to worship. When it says dumb, it's not talking about intelligence. It's talking about unable to speak. You were worshiping these idols that were nothing. And he's addressing how they were led to do those things. And as he's explaining the spiritual gifts, he's explaining that they should not approach the things of God and the things that they have in God the same way that they used to approach their worship. So the the application in that is just to be careful that we're not pulling into our worship of God the things of our past, whatever that may be, and trying to equate the things and how we used to do things in the same way that now we're to do the things in the Spirit. As we operate in the Spirit, the Bible says that we operate are to operate in Spirit and in truth, and that's pure worship. So he says in verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The reason he's saying that is he's using how one worships and, and glorifies or doesn't glorify as a barometer to how we are being correctly led by the Spirit. So the broad application of that is if we're saying we're being led by the Spirit, whether it's like individually in our life uh, personally or in a corporate setting, in a church setting, but yet we're doing things that are against Christ or don't glorify Christ or aren't biblical or aren't according to the things of God, then that's a way to sort of understand that this is not the Holy Spirit. It's something else. And so when I think of that, I think of uh, some of the applications in some of the perversions, I would call them, of how people operate in the Spirit, um, how they, say, would interrupt a teaching. So in some charismatic circles, there would be Bible teaching, and then there would be someone interrupting the Bible teaching and saying the Holy Spirit saying something, 
the Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt the Holy Spirit. So that's one thing. Another thing is just how some services are done not decently and in order, but undecently and out of order. A service like that would be confusing and chaotic. There may be people uh, gyrating around on the floor. There's a reason that the term holy roller has come about. And it's because in certain circles, there would be people just rolling around. Sort of look more like um, children's church than it would what, uh, what we should be doing is worshiping God. Um, another big movement back in the, the 90s was barking like animals. Another movement about those that time, same time, was um, laughter in the spirit. And if you're just looking on the outside, you, you can tell that there's manipulation going on. There's uh, the, the people that are in charge or certain music that they're using and like the laughter in the spirit guy. You know, have you, have you ever just had a friend and you start laughing and you can't stop laughing. There's, you know, you just kind of, kind of go back and forth. And you're not really laughing at anything. You're just laughing because the other person's laughing. So we can make each other laugh if we start laughing. And so he, he's saying, like, judge how this is honoring God. Judge how this glorifies God. Judge how God is working. Now, there's another side of that, too. So I would say I would probably... 10 more to discuss things on that side of more of the charismatic or charismania, I would say. That's uh, Pastor Chuck Smith coined that term. Um, that term charismatic is usually applied to those who have a understanding and a desire to exercise themselves in the gifts. And Charismania is more the things that I just described, just sort of going crazy with it, having no um, order or no um, way to do something that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. But then there's the other side where you ignore the gifts of the Spirit, where maybe you have seen some abuses or perversions of the things that we're talking about in the gifts of the Spirit, and so you say, well, I don't have anything to do with that. Then your faith will become just intellectual. And when it just becomes intellectual, we're in trouble too. Because we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? We don't have to compromise one for the other. We should worship God 100% with our mind, 100% with the spirit. And those things should all go together 100% in the truth. Uh, a thing that happens in charismatic circles is they put experience above the Word of God. So their experience will dictate what they do. We allow the Word of God to dictate what we do. So what we should see happening within our body is what we see in the Word of God. And if we don't see that in the Word of God, then we don't want that. We shouldn't be doing those things. And so there's a balance to that. And so we do need to embrace at the end of this chapter, it says to 
that we are to earnestly desire the gifts. That we shouldn't sit here, and we've, we've had people over the years because of different backgrounds, church backgrounds, and they, they'll come and say, well, I like Bible teaching, but I don't want to have anything to do with whatever gifts or you know tongues or something like that. Like, don't even get me into any of that stuff. But then I, I always have to, to ask, well, are you open to what the Lord would have for you? Do you earnestly desire everything that God has for you? And that's the question for us is we are to actually seek and desire earnestly every, every spiritual gift that God has for us, and we're to exercise ourselves in that gift. So in verse 4 now, he says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all and all. So what is he talking about? So now he's beginning to emphasize that there is a variety of ways that the Spirit works in a variety of individuals but there's a unity and a oneness to all those things because it is the one God who is working all those things. Now, one thing to consider when we hear that is to know then within the body of Christ, it is important that we embrace everybody's gift and we're careful not to overemphasize our gift thinking that everybody should be doing our thing. I like to call that gift projection. So say I have a gift of evangelism, an unusual gift like Pastor Brian. By the way, he's home safe now. And he's off to Haiti now. Seriously, I think he's in Haiti now. Someone like Pastor Brian, if you spend time with him, and you'll understand there's something different about him. Like, I want people to come to Christ. I want to share Christ with people. But there's something different about him. He has the gift of evangelism. So when everything went down in Israel, I was talking to you about how he was thriving it was, he, he, this, this is what he lives for. This was the moment that he lived for. Open hearts being stuck in a bomb shelter in a very uh, particular time. He's loaded with Hebrew and Arabic tracks ready, and he's passing them out to those people there. He's just loving that. But see, Pastor Brian, for example, he shouldn't say, all of you should be exactly like me doing exactly what I do. That's gift projection. We all should be evangelizing in some way. That's the Great Commission. So, but there's certain people that are particularly gifted for that. So we have to be careful. And sometimes you may be, I would call the victim of that, where someone makes you feel terrible about yourself because you're not doing exactly what they, they do. You're not doing exactly what their gift is. They're projecting 
their gift. And maybe for somebody who has a gift of evangelism, they're, they're saying, well, how come you're not out street witnessing with us? How come you're not doing witnessing like we do witnessing? How come you're not passing out thousands of tracts in a bomb shelter? What's wrong with you? Are you even a Christian? So that's gift projection. And then at the same time, you may have someone in children's church praying, teaching, and sharing the gospel with little kids. Now, is there one that's better than that? Isn't that all evangelism? Isn't there different ways to evangelize? That's what he's saying. So as we go through this, he's emphasizing the importance of there's diversities, but there's unity. In verse 7, he says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of everyone. So what does that mean? The manifestation, it just simply means kind of like, it, it's not a big mystery, that word. It means to make visible something invisible, to make something seen that's unseen. So how do we make the Lord seen? We do that by exercising ourselves in the things that are unseen, and that's the spiritual gifts. So God is unveiled or God is manifested or God is revealed when we simply operate and exercise the gifts that he's given us. And when we do, he says, primarily, it's for the profit of all. What is he talking about? He's talking about the body of Christ. So what are the implications of that? The implications of that is that we should be part of a body of Christ and participating in a body of Christ. That means that our gifts are primarily to be used to benefit those in the body of Christ. So to understand this profit, to understand the benefit, to understand a a church that is alive and thriving is to understand that the individual members are taking responsibility of their own walk and bringing them into the corporate setting. And when that happens, this church is alive and thriving. The opposite of that is a church that's dead and dying because the life of the church is the Spirit working through individuals. That's, that's the life. That's the living waters. That's the blessing of God being poured out upon the body of Christ. And sometimes we, we, we make such a, a big thing about it, and it's such a mystery, but really just getting together and just being ourselves interacting with one another, what will happen is our gifts will come out. So when I came in, I interacted with a few of you, and I was able to experience God in you and through you just in a little interaction. So as God works through our personalities and as He works through how we are, 
then we get to experience God. Ultimately, it's the love of God that we get to experience in a lot of different ways. So in verse 8, he says, he lists some gifts now. This is not a complete list of gifts. There are gifts listed in Romans 12, in, in Ephesians 4. The gifts that are listed gives us an indication that it's not a complete list, that there's probably many more gifts. And more importantly, it seems like there's a gift mix. So each individual sort of has a, a unique gift mix about them. But he, he lists some here, and it's, it's going to be good to, to look at these. So he says, To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. What's that? So a word of wisdom is a supernatural, divine understanding in a particular situation of what to do. So the Lord may put that on your heart, something on your heart. There's a situation, there's a circumstance, there's something going on. And the Lord lays something on your heart and it's just like, this uncanny wisdom. And usually you'll realize that it's not you that came up with it. It's almost like the Lord just puts it in your mind or puts it in your heart. And it ends up becoming the, the solution to a problem that oftentimes seems unworkable or seems undoable. But the, the Lord gives you that wisdom to be able to work it out. Now, that's something you could, you could see how the body of Christ needs. And that's something that we all generally need, so we all have a general opportunity to have wisdom. The book of James tells us that if anyone needs wisdom, James chapter 1, to ask and he'll give. And we're so, supposed to have confidence and not doubt that he's going to give us the wisdom. But like I mentioned earlier with evangelism, we are all inspired and led by the Holy Spirit to evangelize. We all have wisdom, but there, there are certain people that God gives a certain amount of wisdom, and they're characterized by having the certain amount of wisdom. You may remember Stephen in the book of Acts was like that. And his wisdom was such that those, it says, that were opposing him were unable to contend with him because of the wisdom. They didn't even know what to do because the, the wisdom that he displayed in all these different situations. Now, if you notice a little bit earlier, it talked about gifts, and then it talked about ministries, and then it talked about activities. And there's one spirit that energizes all of those things. And basically what that means is that there are certain gifts that are particular to certain people, but then there are certain ministries, that word ministries that we find is the word that we get for deacons, so that it, it's probably more gifts that are given for certain offices to serve the body of Christ within the church. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about more offices or uh, particular ministries that are in the church. But then it says activities, and that word activities 
is where we get our word energy. And so what I think that means is that there are times where maybe we don't have a particular overall gift of this type of wisdom in these situations, but there may, may be times where we have the gift in certain situations. And I think that's what he means when he says activities, that there's something that we're facing that's so far beyond us, and as we pray to God and see God, in that moment, he'll give us that particular word of wisdom. There are times that I remember in the past somebody coming in with some, some heavy issues, and we're talking about that. And it just seems like there's no solution. And I, re I remember in a lot of these cases, I'm like, I don't know what, to, I, I'm praying, like, I don't know what to do either. You might call it a dilemma or a catch-22. I have no idea. And I'm praying. Then it's like a, like a raindrop hits my heart, and it sparks something. And sometimes it's just a scripture. It's just a little thing, and I'll say it. And you can see the light bulb go off in their head. You can see the deadness come to life. And it was just maybe a, a scripture that was a word fitly spoken at that particular time that took the veil off their eyes and they had complete understanding of what was going on. So pray for that gift. The church could use that gift. So pray for that gift. He, he goes on, he says, and then to another, he says, a word of knowledge through the same spirit. What's a word of knowledge? A word of knowledge is when different than the word of wisdom. A word of wisdom is sort of like having a, a solution to a problem that seems like there's no answer to. This is like God gives you knowledge or facts, or information to know something that you could have not known, that you would have not known, that you didn't know anything about. So Jesus, we see, exhibit this a lot. When A lot of times he, he would know that the Pharisees, when the paralytic was brought to Jesus through the roof, and the, the Pharisees were sort of mumbling in their minds about, Jesus talking about forgiveness of sins, and they were sort of in their heart saying only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew that. So that would be an example of a word of knowledge. It's just knowing something that you, you did, had no prior knowledge of or could not know anything about, and the Lord reveals it to your heart and your mind almost to where like you see or know or understand something, and it's revealed to you that you had no way of knowing. This gift is, has to be handled with care because why does God give us knowledge about a situation that we had no knowledge about? Why would He do that? I think... In most cases, it's to pray about what He is showing us or what He's revealing to us. A person with this gift, they'll always be 
concerned about what they should do with the knowledge? Should they talk to the person? Should they pray and simply let the situation work itself out? So this gift has to be handled with care. It has to be handled in a way where the person that has this information revealed, they must really seek the Lord about having the spirit of wisdom of how to handle that. Because when we handle the word of knowledge incorrectly, it could do a lot of damage. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about Satan was sowing in the field at night tares in the farmer's field, in the farmer's wheat field. And the question was to Jesus, should we pull them all out? Should we pull those tares out? Because the tares were sown in this field at night when the farmer was sleeping. And so Jesus said, no, because you can't tell the difference. They look the same as the wheat. In that case, he was saying, well, let the situation develop so it would be obvious when the harvest comes or when the time comes that the tares will become obvious. So that was one use of restraint with the gift of knowledge. So verse 9, he says to another faith. Well, aren't we all given faith? Aren't we all given a measure of faith? Isn't our whole walk with God to be a walk where we walk by faith and not by sight? Yes, that is correct. But here is a supernatural enablement to do something that is above and beyond the other amounts of faith even that we have. For example, Peter asking Jesus to command him to walk on the water. So why was he the only one to do that? What made him think to do that? And what was it that gave him the, the, the courage to do that? He had a supernatural gifting of faith. And so for those that God leads to do something way out of their comfort zone, way out of their abilities, humanly speaking, God will give them this measure of faith that will be so strong and so bold that the person that actually steps out in faith in the extra measure and supernatural enablement of faith that's given to them, they will be surprised themselves that they're actually doing that. Isn't that what happened to Peter? It's like when he got out there and started realizing what he was doing, he got scared and he took his eyes off Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Oh, you of little faith. It was faith that got him out of the boat. Faith that kept him walking on water, and the lack of faith that made him sink. So that would be an example of supernatural faith, supernatural enablement to do something way beyond what we could ever think about doing. 
And then he says by the same uh, uh, to another, he gives gifts of healings by the same Spirit. So that's sort of obvious, but it's interesting because when he says gift of healings, you'll notice it's plural. Most commentators believe that this is stressing that there are certain gifts of healing that God gives people for certain particular ailments that people need to be healed from. So it seems like, for the most part, these are gifts that God gives, the gifts of healing, not on a all-the-time overall basis, but in particular moments, in particular times. The question always comes up is, one, do these gifts still exist today? We're going to talk about that more next time. Obviously, I believe they do. I believe all the gifts are in full operation, and we'll talk about that more. But then the question is, well, how come we don't see that very much? How come... That's not th- something that is, is prevalent and obvious. And the type of healing that's being spoken of or the gift of healing is more the, the, the very obvious ones, the ones like Jesus would do. Like there's a clearly blind person and now they're not blind. There's clearly a paralyzed person and now they're not paralyzed. It's not something, and this this could be true, but... It's usually not somebody, somebody that has a, a tummy ache and then they don't have a tummy ache anymore. And I'm not saying that's not possible. I'm saying that usually when you have the gift of healing, it's something that is obvious to other people. It's something that is manifest so that other, other people will see the power of God working through that individual And so just to be clear, that's not to say that God doesn't heal tummy aches and doesn't heal headaches and things like that. But when we see the gift of healing, it's generally with someone who has an ailment that it's very obvious visibly, and then they're healed. A lot of the so-called faith healing that we often see generally is more of a contrived kind of setting and not a true healing. Maybe somebody that's limping doesn't limp anymore, but being a chiropractor, I know there are tricks that you can do to make somebody's leg look shorter or longer or somebody's arm to look longer or shorter. There's things you can do to manipulate those things, and I never did that when I was a chiropractor. But I know all the tricks. I know how you can do those things. And so it seems like when I watch or have seen those faith healings, it seems more like some of those parlor tricks that are done in um, some sorts of healthcare and not in the true sense of the healing that we're talking about here. So then he goes on and he talks about in verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. You know, a miracle is simply something that's done outside of nature in the natural realm that God created. 
So when God created the earth and everything that's in it, the natural material earth, he formulized a system by which everything works. So God made that system up, the tilt of the earth, the rotation of the earth, gravity, the distance of the sun to the earth, and you can go on and on, the cycles of nature. God put all those in motion, and things work according. That in itself is miraculous. But what this is talking about, there are times when that is suspended, the normal, natural ways that things are working, and there's a miraculous way that some, something happens. Does this happen today? Yes, I believe it does. So getting back to um, something I alluded to earlier is why don't we see this as much anymore if all these gifts are available? Well, I think there are several answers to that, and some we don't know for sure. But I think part of it is, is in our culture, we've got so accustomed to having natural answers that we never truly need nor truly depend on or seek the things of the Spirit. A lot of times, the seeking of the things of the Spirit are the last thing we do. However, there are parts of the world where they don't have anything. And so they completely depend on the Lord. That's why I really enjoy learning and reading about missionaries because I think and see and understand that that's where the miracles are happening. That's where things are going down that are unexplainable. That's where those missionaries have nothing to depend on and they're crying out to the Lord and the Lord is answering their prayers. I can attest to a couple of things in my missionary journeys and things like that, my very few that I've had, but I have had some. I'll give you one example. Uh, years back, we were in a place called Pedregales, Mexico, and there was a village up on this mountain. This village was extremely poor. They didn't have anything and uh, Paul was there. He remembers this. But there was a pastor there named Chris Martinez. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Tijuana. And he went and planted this church up there. And we planned, uh, well, he, he built out on this um, hill a little church. And they had a little courtyard. And we planned an outreach to the kids there. Part of that outreach was we were going to have lunch for them. It was kind of like a, a mini VBS it was going great, except we didn't anticipate the amount of people that came. And lunch was coming, and we didn't have any uh, enough stuff for the lunch. There are hundreds of kids, and they kept coming, coming, and we're like, what do we do? We started praying, and there was a, it's so weird, there was a little corner store there. I'm talking very little. And we went there, and we bought a small jar of peanut butter, a loaf of bread, and a small jar of jelly. And we said, Lord, you multiply.
multiplied the fish and the loaves. You're going to have to do that here. And I'm kidding you not. We're sitting there making these peanut butter jelly sandwiches, and I'm seeing lines of kids. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of kids. And I stopped looking up because I was so busy making these sandwiches. We had like an assembly line. And as we're going, the last kid came through the line, and we had our last piece of bread and last piece of jelly or portion of jelly and last portion of peanut butter. So we were able, and I have witnesses to this, so I'm not making this up. We fed, I want to say, three, 400 kids with that amount of food and one loaf of bread. But the, loaf, the bread didn't disappear. Don't ask me how that happened. It was a miracle. So why did that happen? Now, it's never happened in my house. <laughs> right now, I think I have three loaves of white bread in my cupboard, and that's probably why that's not happening. So I do believe these things happen, and I do believe if we go and serve the Lord, we will not deny that the working of God will happen in our life to the extent where miracles will happen and the gospel will be preached and people will be reached. We, we had Pastor Brian here not long ago. His whole ministry is miracles. His whole ministry is God doing things that he could not do. And he, he, that's why I like when he comes. He comes and testifies to those things. Now, did you notice, if you were here when Pastor Brian was here, did you notice he actually uses the Bible as a source of what to do and how to do it? He doesn't take any liberties on his own of just doing his own thing. And he's, he's told me he's seen ministry after ministry after ministry die there. And they're still standing. And the reason is, is because he just looks to the Bible and says, okay, let's do that. And then they get into some sort of problem. And they say, well, what does the Bible say? Okay, let's do that. I think... We don't see these miracles because we don't operate like that in our personal life or as much in the church. We don't operate like that. And so um, we're going to have in November another one of our missionaries, Pastor Vincent from Midigo, Uganda. He's going to come with his wife and they're going to visit us. And uh, maybe he'll have some miracle stories for us too. But it's hard for me to say these things don't exist when I've experienced them myself. And I know people right now, every day, are experiencing miracles in the working of God. So all that's to say, I do think they happen. I just think that we're not depending in the same way on the Lord in a way of desperation to where we would see those things. He goes on and says in verse 10, he says to another prophecy. The word there, prophecy, literally means speaking forth. We often think of prophecy, and it's right to do so, but not 100% accurate of foretelling the future. Now, because God's word is complete... Prophecy is more 
speaking forth the word of God. So there's actually an empowering of God supernaturally and a gifting of God to speak forth the word of God. So that, that again, that can take a lot of different contexts. So sometimes we just think of a pastor or a pastor teacher, but that can take place in a lot of different contexts. And we should ask God for the gift of prophecy or the gift to foretell. So not necessarily foretell like the Old Testament prophets, but foretell. We're dependent on this gift whenever we're sharing the word of God. Because when we share the word of God, it has to be much more than just information. And Paul said that at the beginning of the book. He said that when he came to the Corinthians, it was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we should never think that whenever we're speaking the word of God to, to whoever we're speaking the word of God too, that we shouldn't ask for this gift to be able to do this in a powerful way where the Holy Spirit would bring about the word of God that would hit the heart and the soul of that individual. So we have to be careful that we don't think that this gift is, is just limited to a platform or something like that. We have to realize and ask and beg God to empower whenever we're giving out the word of God in whatever context. And then he says, to another discerning of spirits. So that's another hard one. Because a person with this gift, again, it's a supernatural type of gift. We all should be able to have an ability to discern good from evil. The Holy Spirit should alarm us in our hearts when there's something that's wrong or false or incorrect. But then there are certain individuals that are put in the body of Christ that are given a heightened sense of something that's false or wrong or something where they're able to detect evil. These people are like metal detectors. So the other people may be walking around and they don't know that there's gold under there. A metal detector guy comes and boop, 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 boop. This is like someone with this empowering or enabling. They're super sensitive to the evil and the false doctrine and the false ideologies that come in to a church. These should be sort of like watchmen on the wall. In our day and age, it seems like many churches don't have watchmen, don't want watchmen. And so because of that, they embrace all sorts of false doctrine, false teachers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says we are to test the spirits. And so in a, a church, it's very important to have watchmen. But why is this a difficult gift? 
It's sort of like the gift of knowledge. What does God want us to do? Because when he sort of when, when we're having something revealed to us, if we have this gift, there'll be other people that will come against us because they don't see it or sense it. And so we have to be wise how we bring certain things to the surface. We have to be able to bring certain things to the scripture and say, well, this is why what is happening is a problem. Someone with this gift, they may not have like a specific thing that they can point to that someone is doing or bringing into the body. And so it's probably important for that person to pray and watch and discern, but maybe not bring to the surface a problem that nobody can see or understand. And so sometimes people with the gift of discernment, they sort of sit on something that they sense or see or understand going on that nobody else does. And so in that case, they, need, they know that to pray. Their job is to pray. And that's how they watch. That's what a watchman does. He prays, and when they pray, they're pleading the blood of Christ over this church. They're putting a hedge of protection through their prayers on this church. And when and if there's a certain time to bring to the surface a particular thing that's going on, then the Lord will reveal that to them as well. And then he says, to another different kind of tongues. And then to another the interpretation of the tongues. So that's one of the, probably the most, I think the most controversial one that people talk about, have a hang up about. We'll talk about that more in chapter 14. I'll touch on it now. And then um, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But so, so it is a gift here. It is something that's pointed out. That is a gift. So what is it? So to, to know what it is, you can just go to Acts chapter 2. Why don't we do that? We'll go to Acts chapter 2, just a little bit to the left. And we'll start in verse 1. So now this is a very particular time in the beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2 is really when the church was born. So the disciples they had been commissioned and anointed and ordained to carry on the message of Jesus Christ. At this point in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has died, risen again, circulated around as a risen Savior bodily, seen by over 500 people, People touched him, ate with him, talked with him, experienced him, and then he ascended up into heaven bodily. Now, and since then, he's been, uh, we're told he's sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So the disciples were told to go to Jerusalem and wait. They were raring to go. They wanted to go, but he said, wait until something happens. You're not ready. You're not ready to go yet. You have the information, you have the witness, you have the experience with me, but you're not ready. Why? They didn't have the empowering of the Holy Spirit yet. 
So watch what happens. In chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, so the day of Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. So you kind of get an idea. Jesus was uh, crucified on the Passover, and now this is Pentecost, so it's 50 days after. When it has fully come, meaning Jesus was the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost, it says they were all with one accord in one place. So there were 120, we are told, not just the, the disciples, but there's 120 people in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they're waiting. As they're there, it says in verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, the 120, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'll say subsequent to that, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So as they're waiting, praying, being obedient to the Lord, I would say anxious to go and fulfill their calling to spread the message of God, but they, didn't, they weren't empowered to do that. As they're being obedient to the Lord, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And as we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians 12, the, there's a particular manifestation of the Spirit or a specific way that the Spirit was making Himself known to them, but not just them. That's what's interesting. So what happened was that the Holy Spirit says they, they came on their tongue and that was just a way to say that they supernaturally started to speak in a language that they did not know. So that would be like if I was sitting here and I started talking in Korean. I don't know Korean. I've heard you guys speak Korean, but I don't know Korean. What if I just sat here and I started speaking Korean? And then the Cho's were like, hey, how does he know Korean? He's speaking perfect Korean. That's amazing. So it would be like that. But there was 120 of them, and they were all speaking a different language that they didn't know. So you might say, well, what's the point in that? Well, let's go on. In verse 5, it says, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were they there? There were Jews to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And they were not all from Jerusalem. They're all from different places that are going to be noted. So all these people are in Jerusalem. The 120 followers of Christ were in a particular upper room. Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to talk. So imagine, that would be pretty loud. You have 120 people, and they're just talking in 120 languages. And the sound of that caught 
the people that were Jews that were there to celebrate Pentecost caught their attention. So it says in verse 6, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. So all the people that were there in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, they heard the sound. They come together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So all these people from all these different nations, they're in Jerusalem and they're hearing 120 different languages and they're saying, hey, that's my language. And another person say, hey, that's my language. How is this happening? So in verse 7, they were all amazed and they marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How do they know our language? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born. Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygeria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. That's important. Because when one speaks in tongues, he's telling us what they'll be saying. They'll be speaking and praising God. The reason that's important, and we'll talk about this more later, but a lot of times when tongues are used inappropriately in a service, they'll be used... Well, they'll be talking to somebody. They'll, they'll talk in tongues and then they'll say, the Lord's saying this to you or saying this to you. Tongues are directed one way, that way. They're not directed here. They're directed, they praise God. So when they're praising God, it is getting the attention of those who are there in Jerusalem and they're speaking in their own language and they're hearing these 120 people speak 120 different languages and they're all praising God. Imagine what that would sound like. So in verse 12 it says, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? And others mocking, saying they were basically drunk. And then Peter goes on in his sermon and explains what's happening, and he says this is what the prophet Joel said was going to happen in the last days. So turn back with me. So when we begin to understand the, the gift of tongues that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's what this is referring to. So let me read that again in verse 10. We're just going to go down to verse 11 tonight. So verse 10, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues. So that's an actual spiritual gift too. And it's important to note that because we're going to see later on in chapter 14 that in order for this gift, which by the way, Paul tells us is primarily to be used for personal edification in a private setting. That's primarily where it's supposed to be used. He does tell us that it can be used in a corporate setting in a particular way with 
particular rules and particular details about how to do that. And one of the details is there has to be an interpreter. So that's probably why you don't see that as often, the gift of tongues. One, because it's primarily used for personal edification. Two, because you don't know if someone's going to speak in a tongue. You don't know if somebody has the gift of interpretation. If nobody has that gift of interpretation, you can't receive the person that was speaking in tongues. So in order for this to happen in a, in a corporate setting, somebody needs to speak in tongues, and then some, it has to be a, a real language. And somebody in the body that doesn't know that language has to say what they said. And that would be the proper use of tongues in a corporate setting. And it says only allow that to happen three times in a service. But anyway, we'll talk about, more about that as we get into it. I encourage you to read ahead 13 and 14. So in verse 11, he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, notice, as he wills. So these gifts, we can do nothing to earn them, or merit them, but we are to desire them and even pray that God would give us each of these gifts. Hopefully you see as we kind of went through these lists and encourage you to read the list in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 as well, you can kind of get a sense if a church is going to function as the Lord has the church function, it's going to have to be working in the Spirit, and if that's going to happen, there's going to have to be people within the church that are exercising their gifts. And so each one of those things we need desperately in the body of Christ for the edification and the building up of Christ. And whenever we discount the gifts or we become just so intellectual or so mental or so systematic that's how that's how churches die that's how a lot of denominations become dead and empty because they're just going on a system there's no working empowering empowering of the holy spirit so i hope for us as a church and we're going to obviously continue this in the next couple of weeks that we would desire and say lord help me to operate in my gift empower me to do things that only you can do. And the best way and the best step that you can take is just start interacting with one another, praying with one another, and take a step of faith sometimes. If you feel the Lord impressing something on your heart, take a step of faith and watch the Lord take over because you're taking a step of faith. Be careful not to talk yourself out of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life in a way where you know the Lord's impressing something on your heart, where you're starting to reason. No, it's not the Lord. No, I can't do that. Don't do that. Just step out in faith. And sometimes it takes a lot of faith just to say hi to somebody. For some of you that are really shy, it's, it takes a lot of faith to say, hey, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? 
So we want to be a church that is moving in the things and empowered in the things of the Spirit. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for you are good. We thank you for the working of your Spirit in our lives. We thank you for the gifts of the Spirit. We pray now that you would give us and you'd help us to know what our gifts are. And we pray that that we would step out in faith, that you would energize us by your Spirit to be obedient to your Spirit in the things of the Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.